0: Welcome to the Watermark watermarkoc.church podcast. Thank you for listening. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Ben. I'm the associate pastor here at Watermark. I'm so thrilled you're here. It's awesome. We're going to bring the word. We continue in this series called Wonderful. It's a study in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to pick up in chapter 12, the second half of chapter 12, which is where Bucky left off last weekend. It's this conversation about two great mountains, Anyone ever had a a mountaintop experience before? You guys like the mountains? Anyone like the mountains out there? Yeah. All right. Good. Well, I bet you never had a mountaintop experience like the ones we're going to talk about today. I don't care who you are. We're talking about Mount Sinai. You know, the one where, where the great Ten Commandments were handed down to Moses. We're talking about Mount Zion, on the other hand, and Mount Zion has all this like multi-layered meanings, but the mean we're going to focus on today is is, is like spiritual Zion, which is here and now, heaven that's here and now. We're going to get into all that, but there's these two mountains. It's the tale of two mountains this morning, and what these mountains is about, I think, after looking at this text, wrestling through this text, this is a tough book. The Bible can be gnarly. And I stumbled through it, and I just want to hope, hopefully just unveil something today that I believe that God is speaking to us at Watermark. But we're talking about holiness. These mountaintops, these mountains, these two particular mountains, and this passage in Hebrews, I think from the first verse to the last, is about holiness. And, and I'm here to remind us this morning that we serve a holy God. When I say holy, I don't mean like, uh, like anything else can be holy, like a holy object or, or this thing is so holy. I, when we say God is holy, it means he's, he's completely unlike any other thing. And there's all these attributes that go along with that. He's, he's untouchable, unseeable, unapproachable, incommunicable even. I, I cannot, I will hit a limit on words to describe God's holiness. That's how pure, holy he is. And I think if we spend some time with this holy God, uh, there's going to be an impact. There's going to be some outcomes in our lives, some takeaways, some things that happen to us. And I think that what it leads to, if you look at, at, the, at the screens now, this is my, kind of my big idea, the holiness of God will leave you thankful. It'll leave you broken and full of authentic love. When you rub up and you experience the holiness of God, it's going to leave you thankful. It's going to leave you broken. It'll break you down to be in the audience of God. And yet it will also fill you up with with a ministry, a life of authentic love. So if you have your Bibles, get your print Bible out or get your phone. Uh, We are a phone-friendly institution in this place. And in fact, I would love it if you would read along because uh, people experience growth in their life when they have a daily repetition of, of Bible activity. So get your phone out. Go ahead. It's okay to download the Bible app and follow along. Verse 14 in chapter 12 says this, Work at living in peace with everyone, and work at living a what life? A holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Verse 15, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. So what is holiness? Right now we're talking about the application to us as humans. We're, we're called to be holy, uh, which means set apart. It means we should be different. We should be marked. Having experienced this good news of the gospel, this good news of Jesus, this, this good news of the Bible, we, we're set apart. We're a little different. We're holy in that way. You know, the other day I was uh, trimming my beard, and Levi, who's my uh, soon-to-be seven-year-old, was sitting there watching, and he says, uh, "He says, Dad." you have hair all over your body, don't you, Dad? (laughs) I said, said, yes, son. Yes, that's true. And you know what I did next? I literally got my phone out. I put the Bible app on, and I clicked play for Genesis 27, the audio version, so he could listen to Genesis 27. Do you know what's in Genesis 27? The story of one hairy dude named Esau. This is a really quick side note, okay? Parenting pro tip. See, at Watermark, we have a value where we want to embed the Bible in everything. If you're a parent or a grandparent or you know a youngster who still has ears on to hear you, you take advantage of every opportunity to point them to the Word of God. My son said, Harry, what did I think? I thought, Esau, what? Weird, crazy, right? But do you think something can be taken away from the story of Jacob and Esau? This is like one of the oldest and truest forms of, of like, uh, verbal narrative that was passed down through the Jews, through the Old Testament that story was memorized. It was told to apply to your life. Sorry, that's my quick parenting pro tip. Embed the Bible on every opportunity. And it's so cool. Look at the technology. Press play. You just listen to the chapter. And it's a crazy chapter, but really neat. I want to talk about Esau. Suffice to say, I want to talk about Esau. That's what I take out of that passage. What can we learn from Esau? Well, before we get there, I want to talk about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Sorry, I'm going to go there. I want to know, raise your hand. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to isolate you. It's okay. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to come down harshly. But if you have not, I only want to see a hand if you have not seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Raise your hand if you have not seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Okay, thank you. This is a safe place. Love you guys. The six of you that have not seen that film. I'm going to give you a really crash course. There's an old school one. They made a new one. Uh, It's a story of these four or five kids. They walk into a famous candy maker's factory. And the plot is that that, that, that the candy maker is trying to find out their true character of the children. And then he's going to give them something, the person who passed all the tests, through this crazy factory experience. And so there's all these kids, and and most of them are just snot-nosed brats. They're brats. Including this one named Violet. Violet. Now what does Violet say? What is Violet known for? She's she's the spoiled brat. She's spoiled rotten. Okay, and one of her lines, right, from the film, I want it and I want it now, Daddy. It's British. Okay, the original version was British. I want it and I want it now. That's Violet, isn't it? But it's also it's also Esau. That's also Esau. Anyone else in this room recovering as a as a chronic consumer? like Esau was in that moment. I want it, and I want it now. If you're not familiar with the story of Genesis 27, and before that, he trades his birthright, which is the gift, which is the test, which is the inheritance, which, by the way, in Willy Wonka, what's the gift at the end? Does anyone remember? Say it out loud. They get the factory. They inherit the factory. Whatever kid can be proven resolute and their character's tested, they get the inheritance of the factory. Same thing for Esau. Well, not exactly the same, a little different. But he has this inheritance on the line. He comes in famished one day with his brother Jacob. And Jacob's like, yeah, I'll give you, because Jacob's the cook and Esau's the hunter. And he says, Jacob, just give me the meal. I'm famished. I'll give you anything. And Jacob's like, sweet, give me your birthright. Let me get that inheritance, dude. Let me get that inheritance. And he trades it because he wants it, and he wants it now. How many of us in the room are recovering consumers just like Esau? Just like violet, there's a violet in all of us because we're drenched in this consumer culture. Get it more, get it better, get it faster, get it er, whatever er is in your life. That's what we're immersed in every single day. And yet there's this thing that's at stake, which is the inheritance. This inheritance for, for, for Esau, it was uh, the land, a blessing of prosperity that God would get his back. And the story of Willy Wonka, it was the factory, right? To inherit this, this, this conglomerate that is a, a candy-making factory. For us, what does the inheritance look like? Because there's a tension, you guys. As consumers, we're bred to demand and be hungry for the stuff that the world has to offer. If you got everything you wanted, what would it leave you? It would leave you just sick and full and fed up. It would not fill the real desires of your heart. If we even got everything that we wanted. So Esau wanted it now. He was hungry now. He had no perspective. He had no vision for that preferred future, that inheritance that God had for him. There's a violet in all of us. There's an Esau in all of us. But here's the principle. So we can all agree there's a massive consumer battle being fought every single day for our souls. It is. You think it isn't? Those things are tied to our heartstrings. Why do you think God talked about money so much? Why do you think cover to cover in the Bible, he talked about money? It was not so he can get more and the church can blow up and spend it on jets. No, it's because he knew money would always be tied to our hearts. That's it. It's a a, a battle for our soul when it comes to the consumer battle. There's a violet and Esau in all of us. What's the principle? What's the exchange? The thing we have at our disposal to fight the consumer in all of us, but gratitude. And that's what I want you to look at the slide. It says here, holiness makes you thankful, and thanksgiving is the answer to the little girl inside that says, I want it, and I want it now, Daddy. Thankfulness, gratitude is that answer. You want to know what the most repeated phrase, I'm told, you hear this all the time, so if you're jaded like me, you don't know if it's true. Go test it. One of the most repeated phrases in the Old Testament. You know what it is? Give thanks. Give thanks. There's a beautiful example from Psalm 136. It says, uh, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his faithful love endures forever. Why was it so replete throughout the entire Old Testament, this command to give thanks, suggestion to give thanks? Well, maybe because it is the response, it is the answer for the things that our soul really wants and longs to be filled with. Some would even say that this thankfulness is the leading spiritual indicator for our whole life. You can look at some of the science. Don't, you don't take the Bible's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Go to the actual science of grateful and of happy people. The common denominator for those happy people is that they're grateful. They're filled with that thanks. The God of the Bible knew that. When every 10, 15, 20 lines, give thanks. Remember to give thanks in all of these things. Pursue holiness through thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. You see, if we actually stopped and paused and realized what a holy God we serve, who's given all that we have, every breath that we draw from, is a gift from God, wouldn't that evoke some thankfulness in us? The last nine good things we have, the more we're here focusing on the one thing we still don't have, if we would highlight those nine things of a very holy God that he provided, might that churn some some thanksgiving in us? So, So holiness through Hebrews 12, points us to thanksgiving. That's the first thing. The author of Hebrews, he's going to go into talking about holiness, but from a slightly different kind. He's going to talk about the holiness of God, which is reserved for uniquely God. How is he holy? He's the most complete and total version of holiness. Remember I said that. Now look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, a whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai, Where they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. That's holiness. They were maybe, this mountain, you can look it up, the actual physical geography. It's about the one they estimate would be Mount Sinai. It's a 7,000 foot peak. Okay, so let's say Moses made it up there. Let's say he made it up there 1,000 feet. Okay, the people are down below at the base of the mountain. They're begging and pleading that his voice would stop reverberating through the soil because he's so holy. other he is so totally set apart. That's a holy God. Verse 20, they staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. (laughs) Pretty harsh. 21, Moses himself, Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I'm terrified and trembling. So here we go. We're going to embark on the first of two mountains, the tale of these two mountains. And you see, there's a lot of smart people, way smarter than I, that would like to paint these two mountains as kind of the mountain of the old covenant, the Old Testament God. That's just that old version of God from the Old Testament. That's what Mount Sinai represents. The passage I just read to you, that's the old God, the Old Testament God. And and, and while I think that's not inaccurate, there's an old covenant and a new covenant. We believe that. Since Jesus came, he fulfilled it. Covenant meaning agreement, meaning compact we share with God. Jesus was the fulfillment of it. I believe that's true. I just think that that was to an audience of Hebrews 2,000 years ago, and they were in danger of just holding on to the holy God. I can never touch him. I can never approach him. I could never even have a relationship with him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 understand. You can have access to this God. He is personal. He's relational. I think fast forward 2,000 years. Guys, I think we still need Sinai today. I think we still need the Sinai mountain experience of holiness today. For those of us who maybe have lost this experience with a God this powerful, this raw. You know what my favorite thing about holiness is, though? My favorite things about holiness is how it leads to brokenness. If you're you're broken this morning, take hope. (laughs) In this model, in this faith, in in this Jesus-following thing we call Christianity, this is the one place where you can be broken. And I think brokenness is an incredibly useful tool for the livelihood of a believer, not just the individual livelihood of a believer, but for the church as a whole. If the church is going to have any chance, we must admit that we're broken without a holy God. I want to talk about um, Luke 8. In Luke 8, it's not going to be on the screen here for a second, but Luke 8 tells the story of the bleeding woman, the bleeding woman. Uh, You have to understand, for the context, a woman uh, that was bleeding constantly, that was hemorrhaging like this, would have, according to that old-school Jewish law I've kind of mentioned, uh, would be completely secluded, be separated, be ostracized um, from friends, from family, from community, cut off. And Jesus at this early stage in the New Testament Gospel, just Luke 8, He's already established His power. He's established His healing. He's established his, His miracle working. And so He's on the trail... Just hordes of people following in tow, and this woman stinks in, she thinks in her head, "This woman, God bless her, she has a perfect definition of holiness, because she, she thinks to herself, "If I can just touch, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch his cloak, if I can just touch the fabric of clothing that's falling off of his shoulders, I can be healed." She understands that the most holy man that ever lived, the clothes on his back, could be a vehicle for for healing her once and for all and settling her problems, bringing her back into community. And yet she tried to hide. And when she realized she couldn't, because Jesus stops the traffic, everyone, and the disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you, Jesus? We're, We're pressed on all sides. What are you talking about? I mean, she'd already been healed. Why did Jesus need to stop? and make a moment out of her. It's, it's tough enough. She's already lived in this, this alienation. I mean, how would that be if you had to stop? This is real. This is what it is. How would you, if you had to talk about your, you know, your menstrual cycle in front of a huge audience, how would you like to be called out? And, and, and yet Jesus does something so beautiful with her brokenness, like he wants to do with you and me if we're willing to confess that we are broken. If we were willing to come to him and reveal ourselves, as Bucky said three or four weeks ago, and stand naked before our God, he can do something with that. Here's what he actually says. Now look at the one little piece I want you to see. The whole crowd heard her explain why she touched him. The whole crowd of strangers. Why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. She went from alienation being ostracized to daughter just like that do you see what god does when we're able to admit our brokenness because we're faced with the holy god he turns that brokenness into healing he turns that brokenness into our true identity he can do so much with that brokenness and where does this brokenness take us i want it, it takes us to something pretty exciting i think and it was uh, it was like a week before easter and uh, I was at this pastor's breakfast. I don't know how I got invited. It was at Saddleback. Uh, I don't know how they got my, e- how my email. I think I went once with Bucky, who's our, our lead pastor. And so I was, on, I was subscribed. So I got the email the next year when it came to the pastor's breakfast. There's a bunch of other pastors there. And some, um, some really big-name pastors go up there, and they speak, and they pray over a particular thing. And this one guy was talking about prayers of confession and repentance, bearing our brokenness. That's what it is. Confession and repentance, just burying our brokenness, being that way in front of a, a holy God. And he suggested that, that confession and repentance are, are actually the keys to revival. He said that word. In my experience, this, this word revival is kind of like a Christian buzzword. And, and if I can be honest with you guys, I, I, don't actually have, I didn't at that time have a, have a near complete understanding of what that word meant. And so I did what every good pastor does. I, I went to Google, right? So I went to Google. Uh, see, the thing is, when you go to Google, you got to know what to look for. And I found, I stumbled upon the famous 19th century preacher charles spurgeon charles spurgeon is is renowned as one of the most epic preachers of all time you can look at his stuff and you can see even from centuries ago and this this is what he said this is his definition of revival to live again to receive again a life which is almost expired to rekindle into a flame the vital spark which was nearly extinguished See, Spurgeon in the sermon, like you can read the whole thing. I didn't, get through the whole, I didn't even get through half of it. It describes a believer who, who they themselves have lost the wonder and awe of a holy God. They've lost the everyday majesty. They've lost touch with that. They've forgotten how holy he is. You see, when you look at the word revival, I'm going to unpack it for you. If you look at the word revival, it presumes that a part of the body is lacking a key piece of its vitality. Not just like every day, oh God, give me patience for today to get through these circumstances. Or, Lord, give me faith for this season of not knowing your plans. Or, or you know, Lord, just grant me mercy. You know, just I need this little bit to get through. It, it, it's talking about a, a huge piece of us that's missing that we require to be vital. And that applies to the corporate church. Picture the example of drowning. If I said to you, the church is near death, pulled out of the water in order to be resuscitated. That's what I'm suggesting in terms of revival. And the newsflash is, you guys, that's the American church today. That's our American church today in need of resuscitation. Not just a little bit limping or just a little bit broken, but a large swath missing. And I want to argue using this text from Hebrews that if we could be more broken, if we could be more vulnerable before the world, before a global audience, a culture that's so jaded because they know this holier-than-thou religiosity that is not the Jesus way. That's what they know, this unapologetic, brash, in-your-face, condemning, judgmental faith of old. If we could come before them and say, I don't have it figured out. I'm broken. I'm hopeless short of the hope I have in Jesus. That's our application for the church that is Watermark, that is our, our community, and for maybe you as an individual level. And so I want to know, are we allowing ourselves to be broken before the Lord, guys? Are we a confessing and repenting church? Let's bring it all the way home. At Watermark, we, we take communion almost every weekend. and It's kind of a cool, organic thing just started happening. People, we take communion, there's these four stations, and then people kind of roll off and get in circles uh, and huddle up and pray together. When you go in those prayer circles, um, do you devote a, a certain part of your time in communion to confessing and repenting? Are we doing that? Are we safe to do that? Even among strangers like this woman, this bleeding woman, are we willing to do that? And how could that be the spark that leads to revival in your individual lives, in our corporate church, and the American church as a whole? Holiness leads to brokenness, and brokenness leads to revival, y'all. And I'm about that. I'm here for that. So we need a holy God where we stand before him trembling and made undone. But we also need heaven. So we come to mountain number two, Mount Zion. Let's read on. Verse 22. This is what it says. It says, No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels and a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You've come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance, like the blood of Abel. So here we've come to the second mountain, the heaven mountain. I want to ask you, what's the best thing about heaven? Start thinking about it in your head right now really, in your head right now, sitting in your chairs, what's the best part about heaven? What's going to be the coolest thing about heaven? Think about it. Speak to yourself. Give your own self-talk right now in your head. What's the coolest thing? What's the thing you're looking forward to most about heaven? You know, maybe in your mind, some of the things are, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'll have a, a, a renewed body. My body will be made new. No more ailments no more of that brokenness. No more pain or suffering or struggle. Maybe what you said in your head is, you know, I can't, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'll have perfect peace finally because this anxiety and depression is, is too much to bear. I'll have perfect peace. Maybe you said, um, I'll, I'll finally get to stand before God or, or meet Jesus or, or see the apostles or get the answers to some questions that I had while I was on earth. My, my knowledge was so finite. And those are good things. And I've thought those same things as well. So long as something comes to mind. So long as something comes to mind about what heaven is about. Because why should we? Why should we have an image? Why should we have an expectation for what heaven looks like? Well, I'll give you one good example. In the Lord's Prayer. Take the Lord's Prayer for example. Many of us are familiar with it. Some of us came from a Catholic background or or some other church tradition where you got to learn the the, the Lord's Prayer. I'm just going to give a couple small pieces of it. Our God who's in heaven, holy is your name. That's what hallowed means. How how, Hallowed is their name. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On where? Say it with me. On earth as it is in heaven. One more time. Say it with me. On earth. Earth as it is in heaven. How are we supposed to bring a piece of heaven to earth if we don't have a conception, an expectation, a picture of what it is that we're participating in? We should have something. There should be something loaded up there. This is the disciples asking Jesus, How are we to pray? How should we go about this? How should we petition God in our prayers? And this is Jesus' idea. Those are Jesus' words. Pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how did that look like for, for the disciples? What, were the, what, what did their unique prayers look like in that first century context? These new disciples, they're learning to pray. That was a great question. That's how basic they were, how basic we are today. We're learning to pray. They, they, maybe this is one of the things they asked for. They asked for the success of the gospel of grace. The success of the gospel of grace to both the Jew and the Gentile. Those who came from a Jewish background, those who came from a, a Greek, uh, Roman background. The success of the gospel. Are we praying for that? Do we understand that every time that, 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 that the gospel goes forth from your lips, through your acts of service, to your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, and every single time it goes forth from you and lands successfully on their ears, the kingdom of heaven has broken here on earth. Every time that it has successfully landed on someone's ears, same prayer that they prayed 2,000 years ago, that the grace of the gospel, the good news of the gospel would go forth. Maybe they also asked for the conversion of hearts. The changing, that's what conversion means, the churning, the changing of hearts. That they would not just change and make a one time decision for Jesus, but they would become willing and loyal subjects to the King. After all, we use this term kingdom, you know, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of earth. The kingdom of heaven coming here to earth means that they would be under the rule and reign of Jesus. So we're praying, as those disciples did 2,000 years ago, praying that hearts would be churned and changed. And not just that, they would find themselves submitting to a very holy God. And they probably also prayed for the destruction of the kingdom of Satan as well, didn't they? It was very clear, Jesus had painted that picture. That that was a very real war being fought. A spiritual world war and, and, and a war of flesh and blood. And the enemy was real and that there was a real kingdom there. They prayed for the destruction of that kingdom as well. But if we haven't fixed our eyes on this, you guys... If we're not familiar with the fruit and the experience of, of heaven on earth, how can we be active participants in bringing it here? Back to my original question. Back to my original question. What's the coolest part? What's the, what's, what's the best part? Is it the, the 10,000 angels? How, how awful would that be? Meaning like full of awe. How insane would that be? Choirs and legions of angels. Would it be the adoption piece to be called firstborn alongside the Messiah? For he was he was dead and he was raised again and we join him in in raising again as being the firstborn, that adoption to be called his son, like he did to the bleeding woman daughter. That's pretty cool. Having your name, how about this? Having your name secured on the rolls of heaven, on the roll sheets of heaven. How cool is that? Your spot guaranteed, your name written in there. You know, I think it's actually for me. This maybe it's just my bias. Uh, maybe it's something that we need to hear as well, though, this morning. Verse 24, this is up there. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant, in the sprinkled blood which which speaks of forgiveness. Forgiveness instead of vengeance. I'm going to go back to Luke. Um, Luke chapter 7. Uh, again, it won't be on the screen, but I'll paint a picture for you, because that's what Jesus did. And those stories, those illustrations tend to walk with us through the whole week. Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's home. So... Um, uh, SEAL Team 6, okay? Navy SEAL Team 6, high-level religious dude, the Pharisees are. They're the elite of the elite. The most religious, the most holy. Jesus gets invited to one of their homes for a meal. And it says that a certain immoral woman, that's how the text always shows it, this certain immoral woman walks through and starts anointing Jesus' feet with this choice perfume, right? Pour it all over his feet, kissing, kissing his feet, rubbing his feet, cleaning his feet. His feet, of course, being just caked with the muck and the mire of first-century Palestine dirt roads and animal-traced roads. She put her face in it. And Jesus, reading their thoughts, it says, Jesus, reading their thoughts, said, I want to tell you a story. There's a story of two people who are in debt. One of them had a, had, a, had a great debt and one of them had a smaller debt, but they were both forgiven equally. And he posed this question to the Pharisees and the religious elite, who do you think loved more? Who do you think loved more? The Pharisees just, just like totally caught as they always were. Their own self-righteousness, their own version of man-made holiness are just caught, and they have to answer. I just feel so much compassion for the Pharisees that they even have to answer the right answer because they know what it is. Jesus just teed it up and just put them in that spot. Who do you think loved loved more? Who do you think was filled with more love? And of course they answer, the one with the greater debt. Love. That's the way he answers. Love. The one who was forgiven more is loved. You see, I wonder how many of you guys can remember? Can you remember just from the last week? The, the, uh, an incident or a person who you were ready to, to just heap judgment on. Who, who was a person or, or a moment where you were just ready to judge them? Like the wrath of God judgment level stuff. Coworker, boss, family, friend, no one? Okay, I'm the only one. That's okay. That's all right. I'm the only one. That's all right. I'm good with that. And, and you see, I sit in it all day. I do. All day, every day. The customer service person who can't help me, just ready to heap judgment on them. The fellow driver, just why? Why are you using this lane that way? That's not what it's designed for. Or just anyone going slow in my life. Anyone at all. It doesn't have to be on the road. Just going not quite my pace. I'm just ready to heap loads of judgment and condemnation on them. Because I get to live in that every day, I'm so acutely aware of how much this forgiveness means to me. Because how does Jesus answer? Those who are forgiven little love little. Those who are forgiven little, love little. Are you starting to see how that if we were, that we're faced with a very holy God, the God of the Zion uh, mountain, the God of the, the Sinai mountain, that when we're approached with him, that holiness, which is the same thing that, that is accountable for forgiving us, his blood sprinkled on the altar, that that holiness in us is here and now. That's a principle right here. It's here and now. And through his forgiveness, we can bring it, we can usher it in with our authentic love because all of us who are forgiven great can love greatly. That's what holiness does to us. That's what the the heaven mountain, the mountain of Zion, should do to us. And then how audacious is our God? How crazy is he to think that he's going to use broken human beings to be co-usherers and co-participants in bringing about his heavenly reign on earth with our authentic love? But he does, but he does. If you're sitting here and you're broken, if you're sitting here and you're having a hard time embracing your forgiveness, do it because those are the pathways, those are the channels to bringing in revival. Those are the channels and the pathways to bringing through authentic love. Those are the ways that he designed it. That's what his holiness does. Now we're going to round out in verse 25 and he leaves us with this passage that Seth was so kind to read earlier and it's heavy. It's pretty heavy. But let's read on in verse 25 and see what his ending encouragement is for us. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. I love that. Guys, I did such a deep dive this week trying to study and understand what was meant by unshakable and shakable. I just love that. Cannot be moved. Will not get off this rock. Unshakable things will remain. Verse 28. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with what? Go ahead. You can respond with what? holy, holy fear and awe, for our God is a devouring fire. Gnarly. I'm going to invite the band to come up right now as I land this plane, but um, finishes with one heck of a warning, doesn't it? Or at least it feels that way. Holiness from beginning to end. You see what I mean? From the intro to live holy lives, to Mount Sinai, a holy God, back to heaven where we can live holy lives on earth, and then he ends it. He's a devouring fire, so live holy lives. I mentioned to you that that I was struggling with this this ending part of the passage. What are you saying? God, what are you trying to speak to this thing about shakable and unshakable? And after praying about it and and reading through and looking at all the other great pastors and speakers and teachers, because a lot of their focus was around the shakable circumstances. And that's undoubtedly true. I had one of the messages I came across, the person even, there was an earthquake. There was a major earthquake in the 90s and they, and they went into church that weekend and they, talked, they, talk, they spoke on Hebrews 12 because what more shakable thing than an earthquake? And so our default as we read through this passage is that it must be just about circumstances. The earth will rattle us and shake us and relationships and circumstances and workplace and family life and, and, and uh, sickness and death will come after us season over season. And those are the things, right? The circumstances. But I think that that's not everything. That's not the whole, the whole reading. You know, I, th- I think personally that the whole passage hinges on the first line, which is for those who refuse to listen. In other words, let's focus on the positive. Hear. Hear. Hear what I'm saying. Hear what I'm speaking to you. And that's the key to shakable, unshakable things. God wants us to, to heed and hold on to the unshakable things. He wants us to listen. He wants us to pay attention to a God who is speaking to us so that the things that he wants removed can be removed. i say it again. This is so critical. If, we are, if we're able to listen to God, if we're able to hear his voice, he wants to speak to us about the things that need to be removed. He wants to speak to us about the things that need to be removed now, today, here, on earth. Our our facade that we're keeping up, our toughness that we're keeping up, that keeps us from being broken and naked before a holy God. Our our lack of forgiveness. We We won't forgive ourselves. God says, I love you more than you love yourself. I sprinkled the blood once and for all. It's done, it's finished. What is your hang up in taking my forgiveness? Let it be removed. So be broken before me and let those facades be removed. Come before me and accept my forgiveness. Why are you still fighting it? It was done once and for all. Let your lack of forgiveness be removed. But you may say to me, Ben, how can I hear? My challenge is hearing, Ben. Is it going to be a physical, audible voice of God, Ben? What what are you talking about? It's too ethereal. It's It's too remote. How can we hear God? The only thing I can say to that is that we've been given his Holy Spirit. We've been given his Holy Spirit. A gift to every single believer. You can go in your own time, or go in your Bible app. As we sing the song, and we take communion and look up John 16 and, and see what it says about the Holy Spirit. That is a gift and a promise, you guys. That's what it does with Jesus imparting words to the disciples. I must go because I'm sending you someone who will help you hold on to the, sh- the unshakable things and help you remove the things that are shakable. We listen to that voice, we we heed and hold on to that voice, things will begin to be produced in our lives, you guys, that are unshakable. So if the Holy Spirit is the way that we hear, uh, here we go, the Holy Spirit is the way that we hear, he says, listen to my voice, and the Holy Spirit is the way that we hear, we'll begin to listen to him, he'll ask us to remove these things, remove the consumer in all of us, allow us to be broken, allow us to be forgiven, and things will begin to be produced. You may say, what's going to be produced, Ben? The only thing I can hold on to is, and I'm so about not reinventing the wheel, the only thing I can hold on to is what the Bible literally says about the fruits of the Spirit. And you were taught them, if you're a a career Christian like me, um, if that's not the case for you, I'll remind you. Fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These things will be produced. And these things will be unshakable about you, but I'll just admit as the, as the biggest sinner in the room, that's my battle week over week. How do I become more gentle with my two-year-olds who want to test me? How do I become more patient? How do I become more loving? If I listen to the Holy Spirit's voice, He's good and just to reduce these unshakable things in your life, my life, that all comes from a relationship with a totally holy God, and He will make you holy. That has always been His end game to get a people, his community of people, and set them apart. That's you. That's me. That's our community of faith. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you so much, Father, that that you are still holy. You are still the God of, of Sinai. You're still the God of the holy mountain and you're the the God of Zion, and you're the God that is so personal in our lives, Father. That same God, the mountaintop God, is the God who's invading our families, who's invading our parenting, who's invading our workplace. God, you are unchangeable. Your character never changes it never moves. You are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So I'm counting on a very holy God to move this church a very holy God to move this this nation Lord of believers and to move me little old me God and make me bit by bit piece by piece as I'm learning to listen to your voice holy so that I may be a part of producing the unshakable things of your kingdom Jesus thank you Father In your son's holy name we pray amen to find out more about us go online to watermarkoc.church